Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Different opinions about who God is, what people believe about God. The last girl said, you just know. You just know. So let's explore that question for a moment. How do you know God? Is it something that you just feel? Is God an energy? How do you personally know God? And how can you be assured that you have eternal life? Which brings up a very important question. What exactly is eternal life? What is eternal life? We have been looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. We've been in the first five verses. We saw a few weeks ago that everything's about God's glory. Jesus prays that he would be glorified, God would be glorified. It all comes back to the glory of God. Last week we saw that Jesus had confidence in the Father's sovereign election, that God had given to him a group of people to give eternal life. And then this morning, our context comes to understanding what it means to have eternal life. So let's read together John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here's the big idea for this morning, the the central theme, the big thrust. It's simply this. You can experience eternal life through a saving knowledge of the one true God. You can experience eternal life through a saving knowledge of the one true God. So what I want to do this morning is I want to approach this passage of Scripture by asking four questions. Four questions that I think emerge from this passage. Answers are there in the passage, but questions that we all need to face this morning. And so here is question number one. What is eternal life? Well, the answer is very simple in that passage of Scripture Jesus says eternal life is that they know you, the only true God. Now, when Jesus speaks of eternal life, he's not so much talking about the duration of time. It's not so much that we're going to have endless, conscious existence forever and ever. As great as that is, you know, we sing Amazing Grace. That last 
that last stanza, when we've been there 10,000 years, it's just like we've just begun. Yes, we're going to be living thousands and thousands of years forever and ever. But I think what Jesus is talking about is not so much the quantity of time, but the quality of the life that we will have with him. Notice that Jesus talks about eternal life itself. He doesn't say in verse 3, this is the way to eternal life, or this is my definition of eternal life. He says, this is eternal life. The very essence of eternal life is to know the one true God. We often think in linear terms, don't we? When I get to heaven, then I will have eternal life. But what does Jesus say right here in this passage of Scripture? This is eternal life, that you know the one true God. You received eternal life the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ. You have eternal life right now. So you can think of it this way. I have eternal life right now through a saving knowledge of Jesus, and one day I will experience the full consummation of that eternal life when I live forever in heaven with Him and see Him face to face. But eternal life is something that you have now. Eternal life started for you the moment you trusted Jesus Christ. So it's not so much this duration of time, as glorious as that is, it's actually the quality of what type of life you have by being in a relationship relationship with God himself. D.A. Carson has said it this way, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. Now, Jesus here says in verse 3, this is eternal life that they know, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So what does it mean to know God? What kind of knowledge is Jesus talking about here when he says this is eternal life that they know in the original language this word know is not referring to some type of one time knowledge one time i got a little bit of information the word itself means experiential knowledge of god but it means an ongoing continual knowledge of god Not just to know about God, but to know God personally, experientially, as a person. You see, there is a type of knowledge of God that is not saving. Listen to James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons believe there's one true God. The demons know about who God is. The demons know about the essence of one one true living God, but the demons are not believers. It is a knowledge about God, but not a knowledge that's experiential of God. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I know a lot about Von Miller of the Broncos. I know he plays outside linebacker. I know he sacks a lot of quarterbacks. I know that he does Old Spice commercials. I know he wears number 58. I know that he went to Texas A&M. I can tell you a lot about Von Miller from watching him play and reading about him, but I don't know Von Miller. 
I can't tell you much more beyond what I know about him that I see on the, the Broncos games and read about him. But if you were to ask me, tell me something about your wife, Dawn. I could go on for hours and hours and tell you millions of things about her because we've been married over 23 and a half years. So I know my wife in a very experiential, intimate way as my wife. I know her. I know about Vaughn Miller, but I know my wife. The type of knowledge here that Jesus is talking about is not just you have knowledge about God. It's that you know God personally, experientially. It's a living knowledge. It's a saving knowledge. The Old Testament prophets often talked about the knowledge of the Lord. Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. A lack of knowledge destroys a people. Habakkuk 2, 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So knowing the one true God is a living, personal, experiential knowledge that loves God that enjoys God. And it comes from a transformed life. You see, before you were a Christian, you did not love God, you did not desire God, you did not treasure God, you did not enjoy God. But once God changed you from the inside out, He gave you new affection so that you could know God in the most experientially powerful of ways. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you become a new creation in Christ, you begin to know God in a way that you did not know him before. You knew about God, but now because he's changed your heart, you're freed up to know God. And that prayer that I prayed earlier during our our offertory prayer time, listen to what Paul says again, Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know, same Greek word there, to know the love of Christ. That surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So when Jesus talks about eternal life being to know God, it's not just that you know about God. Not that you know some facts about God. It's that you experientially have a living, dynamic relationship where you know him personally. So that's question number one. What is eternal life? It's to know God. Question number two. Why is eternal life found only in the one true God? Notice how Jesus qualifies God. Verse 3. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. He's the one and only God. He is the true God. He's the one true God. This goes all the way back to how God revealed himself to Israel. Back in the desert. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. This is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. And when in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, if we get that up on the screen, where God says he's the one, hero Israel, the Lord is one, 
It's, it's Yahweh, the, the word Lord in all caps, which conveys the very essence of God. That God is the only God. That God is the self-sufficient God. That God is the independent God. Uh, that God is the creator God. There is no competing gods. G- God doesn't sit up in heaven and ask advice of anyone about how to run his universe. He's the only one true God. Now, a lot of people make multiplicity of gods. There's other so-called gods. There's idols that people worship. But, but you can't refashion God into your own image. He's the one true God. Isaiah 45, 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none besides me. There's no God besides God. It's the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. He's the one true living God. Notice how Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 4-5. through 5. Paul says, Therefore, as to eating of foods offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and quote-unquote lords, Paul says, listen, there's only one true God. A lot of people are making up idols of so-called gods, but there's only one true living God. 1 Timothy 1.17 To the king of the ages... Immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Luke 4, 8. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus here is saying that there is an absolute exclusive one true God. The one true living God, the creator, the sustainer, the one true living God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He's the living and true God. 1 John 5.20 This is the same writer who wrote the Gospel of John. He puts it this way in 1 John 5.20 We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we know, may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. The true, the living, the one God. If He is the one true and living God who is the sustainer and creator of all things to whom all allegiance and worship is due, then, then why in the world would you give in to idolatry? Idolatry says, I'm going to exchange the glory of God and trade it in for something created that's going to give me pleasure that I think God won't give me. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten fourteen, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 John 5, 21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So what have we seen so far? far? What is eternal life? Eternal life is knowledge, experiential knowledge, of who? The one true living God. The one true and living God. What's the opposite of eternal life? 
eternal death. What's the opposite of the one true God? A bunch of gods that you've created. Idolatry. Question number three. So question number one, what's eternal life? Question number two, why is eternal life only found in the one true living God? Question number three, how do we come to know this one true God? How do you come to know this one true God? Well, the answer is it comes through Jesus Christ, but I want you to notice what Jesus puts there in that verse. Look at verse 3 again. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is impossible to know God in any way that we as humans choose to know God on our own. We only know God through Jesus Christ. Only through him who has been sent. You see, in today's culture, there's a lot of weird and wacky ways that people try to know God. They try to find God. They try to experience God. You've got the New Age movement where people do Eastern meditation techniques. They try to tap into God through Eastern mysticism. You've got the extreme word faith movement where people like it's supernatural, Sid Roth, and these people were, you know, the teleportation and, and talking to angels and, and gold dust coming down from the worship service and filling your cavities with gold uh, so that you can, I don't know, not have, like, have gold cavities. I don't know what you're going to do with a cavity that's been filled with gold. You're going to take it out and use it to go buy something. I don't know. All this weird stuff that you see on TV. Grave sucking. Do you know what grave sucking is? There are actually people that go to graves of famous Christians like C.S. Lewis and others, and they'll lay on the grave to try to suck out the anointing of that person. Grave sucking. That's another way people try to tap into God. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? I'm very spiritual, but I don't like organized religion. I can go to the mountains to find God. I can go to the reservoir to find God. I don't really need to go to church or be around God's people to find God. So, All these ways people try to find God, but sadly, what's the one thing that's missing? Jesus. Jesus. You can only experience God through Jesus. Go back a few chapters to John chapter 14. Just turn your your page. It's one page in my Bible. Turn over John 14. We've already covered this ground, but listen to what Jesus says. John 14, 6 through 9. John 14, 6 through 9. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, do you know him and have seen him? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is the only way we get to know the Father. We cannot pick and choose how we will get to the Father on our own. Whatever method you take, whether it's mysticism, whether it's trying to be a good person, whether it's church attendance, whether it's grave sucking, all these different ways that you can try to get to God, the only way you can get to him is through Jesus. There is only one mediator. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, there is one God 
And there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It's very significant how Jesus names himself. What does he say there? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. It's the only time in the Gospel of John, besides chapter 1, verse 17, where you've got the compound name, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, it's Jesus Christ. Now, what's the importance of Jesus Christ? Jesus is Greek for Joshua or Yeshua. (coughs) It means salvation comes from from the Lord. That's what the name Jesus means. Salvation comes from the Lord. That's why at his birth, when the angel announced, <coughs> excuse me, Matthew one twenty one, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He's going to be savior. So that's what the name Jesus means, a savior. What about Christ? Is that Jesus' last name? Some people think, well, that's just his last name. It was very, very important why he's called Christ. Messiah, the anointed one. When it says, when Jesus says, I'm Jesus Christ, Christ means that all the prophecies that were prophesied about Jesus in the Old Testament are coming to fruition in him as the Messiah. So let me talk about what it means to be the anointed one. In the Old Testament, only three offices of people were anointed, specially by God. The prophets were anointed. Those like Elijah, those like Jeremiah, the prophets, those who proclaimed God's word, they were specially anointed, the prophets. Number two, you had the priests. The priests were anointed, like Aaron and his sons, the Levites, they were anointed. And number three, the kings of Israel were anointed. David was anointed. So you had three offices of people in the Old Testament that were specially anointed. But here's the kicker. There was not one person that had all three titles. So for example, Moses could be considered a prophet, but he was not a king. David was considered a king, but he was not a priest. Samuel or Elijah were prophets, but they weren't kings. Jesus comes along the scene, and as the anointed one, he fulfills all three of those roles in Israel as the prophet, the priest, and the king. So think about it. As the prophet, as the anointed prophet, Jesus not only proclaims God's word, but he is the word. He's the word made flesh. As the anointed priest, he not only offers the sacrifice, but the sacrifice is himself. He is the sacrificial lamb of God that was slain. And as the anointed king, he is the king of kings and lord of lords who will one day come back on a white horse. So when Jesus here says, I am Jesus Christ, contrary to a lot of times we hear in our culture, it's not a cuss word. It's not Jesus in his last name. It means salvation is of the Lord and it's found only in the anointed prophet, priest, and king. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the only sufficient way that anybody can have a relationship with the one true living God because I am Jesus, the Lord, salvation is from the Lord, and I'm the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And the only way you can know this one true God is through me. 
What's the opposite of life? Death. Spiritual death. Jesus says this is eternal life. That you know, that you know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. 1 John 5, 11 through 12 says this. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Very clear. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. You don't have Jesus, you don't have eternal life. If you don't know God the Father through Jesus, you don't have eternal life. That's the warning. Don't die in unbelief, because if you die in unbelief, you will, not, you will experience eternal life. But it will not be eternal life in heaven with Jesus. It will be eternal life, eternal conscious torment in hell, away from the presence of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But one thing we need to understand is the cost. What did it cost Jesus to give us this eternal life? Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life, but what's the wages? The wages of sin is death. So we have sinned against God. We deserve death. Somebody had to pay for that death. Somebody had to pay for that sin. So here's question number four that emerges from this text. Question number one, what's eternal life? That they know the one true living God. Question number two, why is he the one true living God? Because he's the God above all gods. He's the one true God. He's the only God. Question number three, how do you know this God? Only through Jesus Christ. But here's question number four. What is the foundation that secures our saving knowledge of the one true God? What's the foundation of it all? What secures it? What grounds it? It's found in verse four. Verse four. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus emphatically says, I accomplished the work. I completed the work. I finished the work. I perfected the work. We call this the finished work of Christ on the cross. But yet, Jesus began the work the moment that he was born of a virgin. He started the work. He did everything necessary to secure our salvation. John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Everything that Jesus did, from his miracles to his teaching to his death to his burial to his resurrection to his ascension to his being at the right hand of the Father, all of that has been accomplished. Jesus is in the garden saying, Father, I have accomplished the work. And he's about ready to go to the cross and and put put the nail on it, if you will. It has been accomplished. What did Jesus cry out on the cross? John 19, 30. (coughs) when Jesus had received sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished is the same exact Greek word that he says there in John 17, 4, of I have accomplished. 
But in the John 19 passage, it's in a tense that means that it came to a completion on the cross once and for all, but the effects of it carry on into the future. In other words, it's a permanent, once and for all, finished, absolute, glorious work of Christ where he did everything necessary to secure our salvation by accomplishing our salvation on the cross. Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up, gave him up for us all, how we not also with him graciously give us all things. God did not spare his son, but Jesus accomplished the work. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. God is able to save to the uttermost, to the, to the end, utterly, powerfully. Why? Because Christ cried out, it is finished. He accomplished all the work that was given him to do. That's why in Hebrews 9.12, the writer can say this, He, that is Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That word secure means to obtain to buy, to purchase. Literally in the Greek, it means to experience everything that was necessary for Jesus to experience to buy our salvation. So that on the cross, he could cry out, it is finished. I've done everything required of me to accomplish the work necessary to buy your salvation. So what is eternal life? It is a living, dynamic knowledge Of who? The one true God. How? Through Jesus Christ the Lord by virtue of his accomplished or finished work on the cross. That's what eternal life is. To know God and Jesus through his finished work on the cross. So let's step back and ask a question. Because we've been in these five verses for three weeks. What's the overall essence of the prayer so far? What's Jesus praying for so far? Two big ticket items. The glory of God and the salvation of his people. God's glory and salvation. That's the heartbeat of Jesus right before he dies. I want to glorify God and I want to go to the cross to save sinners. So should this not be our heartbeat as well? to glorify God by telling sinners about Jesus. Fits very well into our mission statement as Emmanuel Baptist Church. We exist to display God's glory and declare God's gospel and disciple for God's great commission. So everything we do is, first of all, about declaring God's glory, displaying God's glory, putting his glory on display. That's what Jesus wanted to do here in the cross. Secondly, we declare God's gospel. We talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ is talking about in this prayer. And then we desire to make disciples. We want people to know God. Here's the thing. If you're a Christian, you already know God. And that's glorious and that's wonderful. But there are thousands of people out there that don't know God. They think they know God, but they don't. And it's our responsibility to go to them and say, let me tell you how you can know the one true God. You see, Peter combines this giving God glory and telling others about Jesus in 1 Peter 2.9. Peter 
says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're a Christian, you were once in darkness, you were once enslaved, you were once in bondage to sin, and God rescued you from that. God saved you from that darkness. God made you a person that, 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 that's accepted in Christ. You're one of His. You're saved. You're redeemed. For what purpose? So you can just sit around and enjoy that? What does He say? So that you may proclaim the excellencies. The word proclaim means to broadcast, to publish, to get it out there. To not keep it to yourself, but to make sure the word gets out. What are we to proclaim? The excellencies. That's an interesting word. The excellencies. It means God's renown, God's glory. In ancient Greek literature outside the Bible, it was used to publish the bravery or exploits of soldiers who fought valiantly in battle. So the word means that we have been saved so that we can tell others about the fame and glory and power of Christ who finished the work on the cross. So how do we glorify God? We glorify God by telling others how glorious he is in Jesus Christ. We tell others that, hey, I was once in darkness, but God saved me and rescued me. You're in darkness? You want to come out of darkness? Let me tell you how you can know the one true God. It's not about just knowing him. Knowing about him, you must know him. And how do you know the one true God? You've got to come through Jesus. You've got to believe Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the only way. You've got to believe Jesus is the Messiah. You've got to believe that Jesus accomplished everything on the cross that was required to secure the salvation of sinners. And you've got to bow the knee to him because he's the king. And when you do that, you will go from darkness to light. You will be a child of the Father. So here's my question. Do you have the same passion that Jesus does right before he goes to the cross? Is it a red, hot, unwavering passion for the glory of God and the salvation of sinners? I mean, that's what we should be about. Everything's about the glory of God, so much so that we need to tell sinners how they can find salvation. You found salvation. Now we go tell others how they can find it. So here's the bottom line question that every single person's got to ask in this room. Do you have eternal life? Not are you going to one day get there. I hope, I cross my fingers and hope to die that one day when I die, I'll get eternal life. That's not what I'm asking you. Do you have eternal life? How do you have eternal life? Jesus says this is eternal life. That you know. Not that you know about. That you know the one true God. How do you know the one true God? It's through Jesus Christ. Christ is the only way. How did Jesus accomplish that for us? By his death on the cross. So do you know Jesus? Do you know that you have eternal life? Have you trusted in the finished work of Christ as the only sure foundation that gives you hope and forgiveness? And so you need to settle that question today. You need to settle that question today. I can't answer it for you. Only you in your heart of hearts can answer that question, do I have eternal life? Let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning.